The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, friends. I'm your host, Chris Thrill. I'm a former Royal Marines commando. I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Hello, friends. I hope this finds you well. Uh, Many of my YouTube subs have asked, should I become a Royal Marines officer or should I um, join as a recruit? Um, In addition, many people approach me and say, Chris, I, I joined training in such and such and I only got to week 20 or I got to week 24 and I got medically discharged um, or for whatever reason. And I try to encourage people to adopt my philosophy of you get one life. That is it. It's not you don't get several rehearsals at this and then the big the big off. You get one life. There's not any point whatsoever. In fact, it's extremely detrimental to your mental and physical health to carry baggage with you, you know, through your however many years on this planet. Now, I've got a gentleman with me today. Ben, do I say your name right? Baldieri. Baldieri, correct. Baldieri. Bit of a mouthful for a a band from Plymouth, but (laughs) we got there. uh, because Ben joined the Royal Marines both as an officer, but then also had to withdraw from training. So I'm really fascinated to hear both of those takes. Um, ben, how are you, mate? Very well, thank you, Chris. Yeah, very well. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Wow, it's uh, I, I love it. You know, Ben, I love it. it. I get to just talk to like-minded individuals i get to practice my philosophy of lifelong learning and 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 i i'm learning as much in a day at the moment uh, that's of value to my life than i probably have done for a whole year in in maybe much of my past Mm -hmm. Um, so to speak to you today is is wonderful you're in shanghai I am indeed. Yep. I have been living in Shanghai for coming up for two years now. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a great city, great place to be. And it's interesting you're in Shanghai and not Beijing. Yes. So the um, Shanghai, owing to its history and um, its location, although Beijing has at least for the past 70 years or so, being the capital. Um, Shanghai has always been the most kind of forward and outward-looking city in China. Um, it's 
incredibly diverse from an architectural standpoint. I mean, there are a number of different areas around the city that used to be um, effectively imperial concessions. So they were managed by a foreign government on Chinese soil. So there's a former French concession, which when you're wandering around, there's lots of like little tree-lined streets with like wrought iron fences and villas and fancy stuff like that. Then if you go to the north of the river, there's an area called Hong Kong, which is a former American concession. So you get that sort of art deco architecture, um, the warehouses, and then right in the center, which when you look up Shanghai and you look up the Bund, which is the, the old colonial buildings and that, that was the former British concession. So there's all of this old style imperial British architecture right on the side. So you get this really interesting, really eclectic mix of history. And then Shanghainese people are now having a very kind of distinct culture as well. So it's a really, it's a really interesting place to be. It's funny. I, I'm guessing, Ben, because as you know, I've spent time in China and Hong Kong that it's probably quite a British thing to appreciate this kind of culture and history and the arch- and the architecture. I, I I would imagine the Chinese uh, it's just not a they're, they're not very quite. sort of yeah. am I making sense? Yeah, not I think I think you're right, not quite to the same extent. I think the the idea of there being this kind of mix of cultures and that from conversations that I've had with some of my Chinese friends, it's kind of, it's more of a, a curiosity as opposed to like a thing. It's like, oh, look, there's some like some foreign architecture or something like that, as opposed to, I think, again, as you say, being British, we have this appreciation for the different styles owing to our history as well and how things can mix together. Yeah, I found that Chinese you know, talking in general terms, it was just very functional, a very, very big work ethic. Mm, yeah. A kind of example of that was when they handed Hong Kong back to the Chinese in 97. Yeah. It was a very famous, was a, a iconic scene of the Royal Yacht sailing out of the former British colony. It was Prince Charles on board, I, I believe, and Chris Patton, who was then the governor of Hong Kong. And the BBC commentator is saying, wow, what a moment. Nobody ever thought that this would come. And there it is, the royal yacht sailing into the sunset. And the camera, <laughs> the camera panned across to the Chinese delegates that had obviously come from Beijing to Oh, oh, you know, to do the, the handover ceremony. And as the window behind them, the yacht is sailing away and they couldn't give a shit. <laughs> They're just like, you know, <laughs> it, 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 there was no, it, it was like there was no sense of, you know, there was no sense this is a unique moment in history. It was like, yeah. right, that's happened. Let's get on with business. Sort of something. Yeah. Um, you're, Obviously, someone who's interested in the mind and the body. Yes. And and performance. Yes. Um, and do you want to tell us a little bit? I, I'm conscious I don't want to go. I don't want to, you know, this old man to go on boring people for oh, too long. because they, they want to hear about the Royal Marines. Right. But but do you want to tell us a bit about what oh, you're doing yeah. now? By the way, so my um, my academic background is in biology. Um, I studied human biology uh, undergraduate at Loughborough University, 
Prior to that, um, I'd always, I've always been involved with sport in some capacity. So I played rugby from when I was six up until the age of 17, got very heavily into my running, got very heavily into the gym and everything as well. Um, and then through that kind of initially childlike fascination with like, if I work really hard, then I can kind of elicit physical changes in myself, but then also the mental changes that came with it. That built, has just kind of built over time. So now it's gone from being kind of surface level fascination with what you can do with your body if you put your mind to it to optimizing the different facets so i'm involved with a group here in shanghai called motivate which is a we're looking to build a community of, of like-minded individuals who are effectively centered around the idea of getting better at whatever it is they're looking to get better at so that's going to be focused on the silos of Physically, so physically optimizing your health, um, getting stronger, getting faster, getting leaner, whatever you're looking to do there. Mentally, so how can you build your mindset so it's more attuned to the goals that you're pursuing at the moment. Spiritually, and I mean spiritually is a slightly, it's a difficult one because it's a bit of a loaded term, but spiritually from the perspective of um, what potentially slightly esoteric practices for example meditation could you take and apply to your life that will then be beneficial to you and what you are trying to do as well but then that also then feeds into things like relationships and communication and so on and so forth so trying to optimize the body and the person in these three areas and then also providing a platform um providing a group whereby people can come and learn new skills as well so We've got the, the optimizing side of things, but then there's other workshops that we put on as well, which could be digging into things like sales techniques. It could be WeChat marketing. So WeChat is the biggest social media network here in China. How can you effectively market your product using it? Um, copywriting, web design, but then all the way through to things like chakras and so on and so forth. So it's a real eclectic mix of of activities and information that people have access to that they can then kind of pick and choose and tailor what they're looking to what they're looking to achieve what they're looking to to learn more about and improve sounds amazing it's funny the spiritual thing trips all of us up yeah if i can tell you how it is for me yeah it's all about the spiritual it's the yeah. only you know i've said this many times it, it's about unconditional love not just for yourself but everybody else on this planet yeah. and it's about tuning yourself to this universe mm -hmm. once you can achieve those two things and they're very much kind of hand in glove you you're a free human being which oh, for sure you know not it's... many people achieve that ben do they you know Oh, no, not at all. I mean, I think the biggest thing um, for me, uh, and I've written about this a few times before, is this, this notion of how you define yourself. Now, are you looking to the outside world to tell you what you are? So it's like, okay, like I'm wearing this suit or I'm buying this car or I have this job and all of these labels and everything that are seen as either valuable or invaluable um, by society. These are the things that I define myself by. These are what these are how I know who I am. Or are you looking inside to find out who you are? And 
how can you make that transition? Because I think everyone, to a certain extent, starts their life in this, whereby you're looking outside. It's like, I figure out where I fit. I figure out where I am in like a social hierarchy or whatever. But then some people make the transition from outside defining inside to inside defining outside. And it's, that's, that's what I'm interested in. Like, where, what, can, what can you do to elicit that transition? I think pain and trauma are probably big drivers, aren't they? 100%, yeah. <laughs> you know, I yeah. mean, it's also this, this uh, we're using the word spirituality. It doesn't really, mm. if, if I had to sum up what I mean, uh, I'd say, like, think of a wolf running with the pack in the nature without a care in the world. It can mm. feel stuff. It can sense stuff. It's completely in tune with its environment and it will be until the day it dies. Mm -hmm. Take the human being, we're completely blocked from, from our natural environment, not just by buildings, but also the barriers that have been put into our minds by our corrupt education system. Mm -hmm. um, we very much misunderstand things like love we've been told that sissy or it's this or that men don't love each other and a lot of this macho utter macho nonsense we've been sold identities that we're all these individuals whereas in actual fact no we're not we're all one universe we're all a part of one universe and of course the subject we're talking about today the military is a brilliant example mm -hmm. because Yes, it was a bit of a good laugh, what, what I did, which was nearly 30 years. Well, it was. I joined up over 30 years ago now. But that was it. It was 30 years ago. I don't choose to define myself about something I did then. Yeah. And ironically, what I did then was basically indoctrinated into the, the military machine the military machine serves a purpose to keep the ruling elite even more powerful and richer than they already are. And um, one reason it's good to sort of not buy into this identity, as Ben was saying, and to go inside yourself is you, you, you become you and you get your life and you, um, you, you learn. It's the only way to learn and, and, Again, I'm I'm sure when we when we speak later, Ben, I'm sure this will come up. All the answers are inside. Um, in some oh, crazy way, you yeah. can't find it. Yeah, you can find maybe hints externally, but it's it's all inside. But um, yeah, in, in, enough said with that. Um, let's hear your marine story, Ben. If if we may, yeah. it's really so, kind you share it. No, of course. So um, I was fortunate enough to be selected for the RMYO 2016 batch. So I started training in 2016. Um, but prior to that, I had prefacing things slightly. Um, I graduated in 2013. And then did the, the first thing that most graduates do, which is think I'm going to make an absolute shitload of money and I'm going to go to London. So I did that and I didn't make a shitload of money and I hated it. 
<laughs> so I spent some time working as an IT consultant for my first job, and then I was an oil broker for my second job. Both in both jobs, um, both of them were about a year long. The second one, I had some exposure to some members, former members of the of the British Army, so members of the the Royal Green Jackets, because um, it's. Um, they were the the managers and the directors of the organization that I subsequently ended up working for. So I had some conversations with them over the course of the year because the military is something that I've kind of been inexplicably drawn to, as I'm sure um, some of your some of your viewers will appreciate, um, because it held this certain sort of allure, this certain sort of mystique. Um, which I still can't quite put my finger on. Like when I think about it now from a rational perspective, I don't really understand where it came from, but it was there. So that was 2014, 2015. I elected to leave London at the end of 2015 um, and then focus on joining the military. And the initial plan was Sandhurst. So to, I don't, I'd never, owing to my background, um, I'm from, I'm fortunate enough to have been raised, born and raised in a very, uh, in the south of England, basically in a very kind of affluent area. Um, my parents' background, they're not from particular wealth or riches. They can just I, worked. Can I ask sort of, where, Ben? Sure. Um, funnily enough, Winchester, Southampton, that sort of area. Okay. So, see, uh, for us, people that live in Plymouth that's up in the north it's somewhere up there <laughs> <laughs> no so I was um I grew up around there so the idea of joining as a just joining as like enlisted just joining as one of the men as opposed to joining as an officer was something that was and it's probably going to sound slightly big-headed but it was never really a consideration more from the social perspective because hey. my peers and so on and so forth just never would have considered that route so it, i didn't this really is consider- exactly what i want to learn ben because i yeah I, I didn't have the confidence when it never occurred me to join as an officer yeah you know i yeah. thought I, I thought i was lucky joining as a grunt that's that's good going for a guy from a broken home who failed yeah. you know all but two exams at school and immediately but the, but but the 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 um the conundrum's not the right word but the thing i faced is my family have this bizarre mix of working class and middle class because of my grandparents status right and so even though my dad was a, a kind of lowly carpet seller He'd been brought up with this, you know, you pronounce your T's and you wear a collar on your shirt and, you know, and, and you become an officer, not not one of the men. And, mm-hmm. and, and so I, I full credit to you for having the, you know, the, the strength of character to mm-hmm. to be able to see that that was your option, because I I, could, I wouldn't have been able to pitch up to that back then. Right. Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. Um because I think there is, at least from a historical perspective, um, there is this perception that um, the officers are somehow superior. And from a hierarchical standpoint, that is the case, just because of the way that the military is structured. Like, if you're an officer, then you are more senior. And because you're more senior, 
I suppose with some mental gymnastics, you could then be seen as more valuable because you've had more money pumped into you from a training perspective or something like that. Um, but I think now, at least, um, I still occasionally receive recruiting literature through my emails and that from when I was on the list before I joined. And it looks as though they're trying to do away with that image. And they were certainly trying to do away with that image when I was in for the, the short period of time that I was in. There's still the the history and everything that's, that everyone is still very proud of. But this idea of um, an officer being this kind of, I don't know, am I allowed to swear? Can I swear on this thing? Say what you like, mate. The idea, the idea of an officer being like some chinless wanker who stands in an ivory tower somewhere is something that they're trying to get rid of. Now, I'm not saying that it doesn't necessarily still happen. I was fortunate enough not to have met any individuals of that nature, but I have heard stories that there are certain sects where this effectively dated attitude still exists, but I was fortunate enough not to have met them. Um, so as I was saying, my initial plan was Sandhurst um, purely from a numbers perspective in that there are three intakes for Sandhurst on a yearly basis. Each one is around 500 people. The odds of me being one of 1,500 were much better than the odds of me being one of, say, 50 at a push. Ben, when you join yeah. Sandhurst, do you join in your reg- as, as a member of a regiment or do you join like a, a- – generic training programs you can go in you can try and seek effectively sponsorship before you go in whereby you'll have meetings with various regiments beforehand and they'll effectively say yeah we'll have him um which i think for some of the the more competitive regiments for example like the parachute regiment and so on and so forth um there is this notion that you have to be more well-known to the regiment prior to going in. But that being said, I had friends who did go through. Some of them went in with a sponsorship. Some of them went in effectively undeclared. uh, And then they were picked up by various regiments, depending on their performance over the course of the year, over the course of the program. Um, And I think it, it varies quite significantly depending on how you do as well, such that if you're, if you're digging out blind and everyone is doing, if you're like, if you're really pulling your weight, then you'll have to explain. You have to explain to our yeah. watchership what digging out blind means. They're prob- probably <laughs> thinking, thinking you got a shovel now. Yeah. <laughs> digging out blind. Digging out blind is basically when you are working your ass off in every single way possible. Um, you are leaving absolutely nothing on the table. And if you're one of these individuals who is doing that, I think that then shows through to the to the training officers, to the training staff, and then you'll be given more choice because, I mean, you're desirable as opposed to someone else who's maybe dragging their heels, they're there because their parents have the correct connections or something like that. Maybe they're not going to get first choice in the same way. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it varies depending on depending on personal circumstances. Let's just take a question here then yeah. that I get asked a lot. Sure. Should I, the question I get asked, it might be different for an officer, should I go to university or college before before or after I join the Marines? So I you think... You need a degree to be an officer. 
don't need a degree to be an officer from a recruitment standpoint, such that the recruitment literature says you don't need a degree. Um, there was there were two lads in my batch who were 18, 19. So they obviously didn't have a degree, but that was two out of 48. Every other person there had a degree. So it's not necessarily that if you don't have a degree, you're not going to get in. It's just that it's so competitive that having a degree is going to give you just maybe that little extra thing that you that may tip you over the edge, that may put you ahead of someone else, which means that you're number 48 as opposed to number 49 and number one on the waiting list. Now, whether or not getting a degree before going into the military is a good idea or not, that's a slightly different question. That's one that I've actually thought about quite a bit. And I would I honestly think that if I was to do it over, do everything all over again, I would do military pre-degree as opposed to military post-degree, purely because the skills that you learn, the soft skills that you learn in the military, for example, discipline and how to effectively manage your time, means that, at least from my perspective, you'll be a lot more effective at getting everything you can out of your degree as opposed to going at 18 and then instead of coming into a disciplined environment whereby you're going to learn how to manage yourself, you're surrounded by bars, cheap booze, and women. I know, and I'm not saying that any of these things are bad. And, these things are and baked beans. And baked beans, exactly. And pork, well, in fairness, I think the baked beans you're going to have in the military as well. There's no escaping those. They're everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but the skills that you would develop if you were to do a stint pre-degree may potentially end up standing you in better stead. But again, everyone's experience varies. I did okay at university. I was I worked hard. I came out with a, an upper second class degree. Could I have done slightly better if I'd gone a different route? Who knows? And there's also something else, I suppose, that you could do a career in the Marines mm. and then not have to go to uni because it leads on to something, especially exactly. as an officer, it's pretty likely to lead on to a, a good career you can say outside mm-hmm. spin it the other way if you went to uni first and you studied a bit of the old social psychology and biology yeah and, and politics and etc philosophy you might end up thinking fuck that for a game of soldiers i'm not joining that shit <laughs> yeah. I mean, that reminds me of um one of the so one of the exercises um well no it wasn't even an exercise it was um just something that they had us doing on a sunday and there was a brigadier who was down at the time and i just remember having a chat with him so he was like oh my god like i'm a second lieutenant and there's a brigadier here so how do i behave like what am i supposed to be saying um and he was asking just how everyone was getting on and chatting to the the 18-year-old guys. And then he came over to a couple of older guys. So there was myself. And then there was another chap as well. Um, both of us were 25. And he was and one of the things he said is, uh, 25 is a difficult age for you to join because 18-year-olds, when, you are, when, you, when they ask you the question, um, why, will accept the answer, because. If you're 25 years old and you ask the question why and you're told because, you'll ask because what? 
<laughs> so it was a, it was a case of like 25 year olds have effectively done potentially a little bit too much living before joining because they know what else is out there they know what they may be giving up whereas at 18 like the world is your oyster but you're also a little bit naive they also you know if you if you're 25 and you've been through uni and you've been exposed to uh, i don't know if it's left wing or right wing or whatever perspectives but but or, or radicalism you you're going to have an element in you that thinks what so we're going to go into this underdeveloped country bomb the hell out of them steal their natural resources to to give to george bush why <laughs> what, what what's the deal there oh well, we're going to get the opium as well um which did do you have any view on that i mean i think for me um my my perspective on the politics and that when i was looking to join the politics never really came into it because as i was saying like i had this kind of the military had this kind of mystique this allure to it so it wasn't necessarily what the military was involved in that was what drew me to it or pushed me away from it it was this this notion of it being an ideal to strive towards mm. something that like it's a, a standard that you can set yourself and as i'm sure as, as you well know like the marines kind of pride themselves on being the hardest bastards in the uk and the british armed forces and it was that that was the thing that appealed to me not necessarily the politics of it all because i mean political regime can, can i just say i wasn't accusing you personally of that no no no, no not at all I just meant it could be an issue, isn't it, where you get yeah, a twenty-five-year-old sure. being screamed at by a by a colonel. Yeah, just turns around and says, "Sir, actually, I I'm I know more about the world than you do." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. I mean, it's. I think making that kind of bargain with yourself that there is going to be an element of, there has to be an element of moral consideration involved in whatever it is that you end up doing because at the end of the day with the military the balance of probabilities is that you are probably going to end up in a situation whereby you are at least flexing your morals you're pushing against what you think may or may not be morally acceptable depending on how you define them and where they fall and i think regardless of your political persuasion that's kind of part of the bargain that you make in that you you expect that it is going to happen and then you make peace with that before yeah. it happens. Yeah. Well, it's like anything. I mean, I went through part of my life as a criminal mm. then, you know? And if if you ask the question, how can a relatively nice guy end up basically stealing from other people? Mm -hmm. It's because in my mind, I completely justified it. I yeah. had a reason why I'm doing this, you know? I won't, it's, the reasons aren't important, but in my mind, I genuinely thought I was in the right. I, I, this is my right to do this, you know? Yeah. It's the same with the military, isn't it? Um, there's this kind of, um, it's quite funny, I met an SBS guy that I used to work with in the pub and I hadn't seen him for sort of 10, 15 years. And, and uh, of course, I by this time, I've been through uni, I'm, I've traveled, mm -hmm you know, the whole world probably two or three times over and I'm starting to formulate, you know, my own sort of ideas. And, and I mentioned Iraq to him and he, he just 
automatically like a trigger went, well, yes, yeah, Saddam Hussein, I mean, a brutal dictator. And it was, it, I just, I just remember at that moment, I, I thought, my gosh, all the time you're in the military, you're, you're getting fed that one narrative, which is fine if you love the military and all you want to do is be ready to prepare to go to war or to go to war that that but if you want to develop yourself to your full potential mm-hmm. you're not going to do it by believing what other people you know by believing other people's narratives for sure for sure i think that i think that right there that's kind of the crux of it that's everything outside of the military as well i mean if you're if you're looking to develop yourself in any meaningful way Sure, if you put yourself in an organization, you're going to develop in some ways, but the way in which you develop is going to be dictated by them. You're going to develop in the ways that they want you to. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It can provide you with a sense of structure. It can provide you with a sense of momentum. It can provide you with support. But if you're looking to really develop yourself and really figure out what it is that you're capable of, what you're capable of learning, what you're capable of achieving, what you're capable of doing, then then it really does have to come from within. Then you have to start, as you say, like taking off the blinkers. It's like, okay, this is what I'm being told, what exists outside of those things. How can I form my own opinions about that sort of thing? Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily a case of like questioning absolutely everything that you hear because then you end up just contrarian. It's like and contrarianism, while it can be quite good fun, like just taking the opposing perspective on someone, again, doesn't necessarily serve you because then you just end up questioning everything, which sometimes can be useful, but other times it's not really necessary. Mm. But again, it's that taking the active role. I think it would be good good for our audience, Ben. Let me just rapid fire you some questions. Yes. And you just answer them, say, in a 15-second snapshot um, soundbite, right? So... When you rocked up at Limston, did you have to wear a suit? Yes. Yeah, wearing a suit, um, carrying my ironing board and my bag of clothes. <laughs> did were you in one man cabins or did you have initially we for the first couple of weeks of training, we were in a um like a shared dorm with eight people, and then after that we moved into the officer's mess where there were two people to a room, and then later into training you move into your own room. Do you um in your two-man room, do you have a double bed or do you have singles? Two singles. Just, just, you never know. You never know, you never know. I mean, it could have, it could have happened. <laughs> so, um, what was the quality of food like in the officer's mess? Or did you not have a comparison? Um, the officer's mess was lots of potato. <laughs> when... We did end up eating down in the just in the down in the canteen a couple of times, um, and the food was actually better there, and there was more choice. So, ironically, the food in the officers' mess wasn't as good. I have actually eaten in the officers' mess. I just throw throw that in there, so I've got. I, I, I we'll come on to that. Um, did were there any real Ruperts that you just wanted to? <laughs> um, by Rupert for our friends at home, uh, I'm talking s- snobby, stuck up, you know, I'm classist type characters. 
So the not with the not with the Marines. Um, when I was going through the recruitment process for Sandhurst, yes. But I think the process, the recruitment process for the Marines filters those people out quite effectively. When I was a, a lowly Marine, or I might have been a Lance Corporal, my best mate went left the Marines, which is what you have to do if you want, want to become an officer, and then rejoined the batch. What I mean is he didn't get a special duties commission where you mm. can just have a desk job as an officer. He wanted yeah. to lead a troop, so he had yeah. to leave the Marines go down the recruiting office, sign on the line. I don't think you have to do that, but do the P, the PRMC or the potential officers yeah. course. Yeah, see, yeah. And so he would come around my house at the weekend and bring all his officer mates, so which was a quite a unique situation to be in for a Lance mm -hmm. Corporal because I, here I am on first name terms with my new friends who happen to all be officers at Limston. Um, so, yeah. Um, did you get to meet many recruits as a, as a young officer? Um, I didn't, but I think later on in the, later on in the process, later on in the program, as you go through, there is that element where you start mixing that little bit more, I think, as you start getting into the leadership duties and that. Do, um, officers get beasted? Yes. More so. <laughs> more so i think um so you're you're being held to a higher standard because you have to be the example to your troop um to the men that you're leading and if your standards start to slip and if there is anyone in your troop who has higher standards than you as troop commander then that's obviously not going to stand you in very good stead in terms of maintaining respect maintaining discipline maintaining capability so um, yeah, we got we got thrashed quite a bit. <laughs> um, do you think there'll ever come a day when they teach officers how to use a map and compass? <laughs> I think they try really hard. <laughs> I mean, no disrespect. It's um, it, it, if you're wondering what we're talking about, it's it's always. Uh, it's um, legend, legendary in the Royal Marines that, yeah. that officers don't know how to use a map and compass, so they always hand it to their senior NCO. Right, like, what's the most, the most dangerous thing in the Corps? A lieutenant with a map, something like that. <laughs> um, how did the training staff, so what we would call as recruits for the training team, yeah. interact with you if they're a lowly corporal and you're a sir, mm -hmm. is there any dialogue that goes on there? Like, I'm going to, do they have to call you sir, or can they call you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So they did, they did have to call us sir, but the way in which that sir was delivered was just, it was, it was fantastic. It was hilarious. It was fantastic. Because it's one sir. of those things. Exactly. It's like, well, that was a fucking stupid thing to do, wasn't it, sir? Or something like that. <laughs> yes. Like, like basically one, trying I, to say you've just got the whole troop killed <laughs> in one word sir yeah exactly. <laughs> okay so i think from a from a purely from like a ceremony um and from a token standpoint then yeah you were you were afforded the you were afforded the respect that kind of came with the rank but that was the thing that was the distinction you had to make it was respect that was being given to the rank not being given to you 
Yes. That, the respect to you, is something that you had to earn, and that had to be earned through the way that you carried yourself through training, the way that you conducted yourself through the exercises. Can you just give us a very brief overview, because I'm sure we could do a podcast itself on each section of the recruitment process, but I know it's slightly, slightly different. Could you just outline from civilian to entering the mess, what, what's that process? Sure, sure. So the the first process, the first part of the process um, was the completion of an online application in much the same way. Um, it's broadly similar for both the Army and for the Marines to complete an online application. Was then invited in to take some aptitude tests at the local um, recruiting center. I think I ended up having to go to London to do that. After that point, um, there are different bands available or different bands that you have to hit depending on if you're going for an officer or for just going in as enlisted or whatever, um, purely from an intelligence standpoint. So basically, you need to have the the intellectual capacity to be able to do the job. Um, After that point, there was the medical. Now, the medical for me was run by Capita. Um, and it was nearly the sticking point that meant I didn't make it in because they just dragged their heels. So you have to go and see your doctor, your local GP. They'll then fill out a form and then they'll request like more information depending on what's on your form. Um, and then they just kind of sit on it and they make a decision based on what. Okay. Question I get asked a lot. Yeah. And I normally reply you know, don't give away any information other than what you have to is people will say, Chris, I've had a history of drugs or anxiety Mm -hmm. or some other mental health condition. Does your doctor have to tell them this? Is it something you should volunteer or should you should you lie about it? Basically, I mean, it's. I think that's up to kind of everyone's individual discretion. There are some things that if you were to put them on your application form, then they would probably end up as a permanent barrier to entry. Um, so that could be, for example, like a long history of mental illness, for example. Like if you've been taking antidepressants for an extended period of time, that's probably not going to stand you in particularly good stead. If it's something like you've broken a bone and it's still healing, again, you should probably disclose that because if you go in and it's not fully healed and it breaks again, then you're effectively going to be liable, I think. Mm. Um, But then for other stuff, like if you're dealing with anxiety, again, like be honest with yourself, I think. Um, Me, for example, I went in with a history of mental illness. I've dealt with depression for. I can't remember a time when I haven't dealt with depression (laughs) Um, and I disclosed that I had had some issues with it in the past, but it was kind of a live omission. Like I was in the past. It's fine. I'm fine now. It's like, no, maybe or maybe not. Do they, does you, what does your doctor have to disclose? Does he have to tell them? Is is there a time limit? Like he's got to tell them your last two years worth of records on is stuff that is in your medical records. So if you've gone, if you've gone to the doctor and you said, like, I'm feeling like a bit depressed and they've diagnosed you with depression, then that will come up because it will be in your medical records. But if you've gone in, you say, I'm like feeling a bit depressed and they like say, 
oh, maybe get some more sunlight exposure or something like that or get some more rest and then come back and see me. If it's just like an informal chat, but it's not a formal diagnosis, then it'll probably be absolutely fine. Okay. It's just one of those areas, isn't it? It's a bit grey. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, again, it's individual discretion, really. At the end of the day, only you really know what you're willing to put down and what you're not willing to put down. Um, there are some things that, for example, I've got another friend who who was looking to join. He had Osgood Schlatter's disease, so like a problem with his knees when he was growing up. Um, absolutely fine now. Doesn't give me give him any issues at all. But because he put that on his record and because of whatever medical criteria um, capita are assessing to, even though in every other capacity he was the perfect candidate, this was one of those things that made him permanently medically unfit. Mm. Even though he's fine now. So again, yeah, it's a difficult one. I'm not suggesting anybody lies i'm not saying that but what i'm saying is obviously if you've got something in your history that is automatically going to get you blocked from joining the british forces well then you kind of have no you know if you're that committed to join yeah you can't volunteer it because you're not going to get in so you will have to lie i'm not suggesting you do lie i'm saying you will have to of course Um, course. I'm guessing there's a kind of middle ground where, like you said, you know, there's a kind of judging where that middle ground lies and judging uh, and judging what your doctor has to by law tell them I, yeah. I, is worth further research. That's what yes. I would say. Very much so. Very much so. And then there's like lies of omission as well. It's like you disclose a bit, but maybe you don't disclose everything. Yeah. Yeah. And also, so what about the drugs thing? Because I have heard in the military itself now, because of the recruitment uh, dilemma, as in yeah. they're struggling to recruit people, yes. that you can get, they, they do like a warning system. You know, if you mm-hmm. get caught with drugs or you get, you show a positive drug test. Not that I did seven years in the Marines. I never did one drug test. And mm-hmm. I'll be honest, I never met anybody that did. I met people that got discharged through drugs, which is what they did back then. Um, one of them got got out without doing prison time by threatening the CO. Quite funny, actually. I'll just tell this little dip because it's it's interesting. Yeah. I, one of my friends was in the Foreign Legion. Mm. Um, and, he, and he got... Uh, he, he let he went AWOL from the Legion to join the Royal Marines. In training, because he was big, tough, he had a skin, you know, he, he naturally suited a skinhead, so he didn't look like a recruit. Where he would just walk out of camp at will to go downtown or see his girlfriend or whatever. Whereas the rest of us idiots would queue up at the guard room and get our yeah. permission to go ashore and have to be all in our irons shirts and strides and all this kind of thing right and he was like oh, sod that he just put his jeans on you weren't allowed to wear jeans as a recruit he just put yep. his jeans on and walk out the gate because he's a big no, no, i mean that's the sentry on the gate don't, probably doesn't even care anyway um but anyway this lad then joined my unit down in down in plymouth and he got into trouble downtown and this this 
this is the cause of a lot of people getting kicked out of the military. Mm-hmm. You get in trouble downtown and either that or something it leads to gets you discharged. In his yeah. case, he got in a bit of a scuffle with the police and they'd kind of followed him to, you know, have a further chat with him. And he'd taken a joint that he had in his pocket and, and put it in a, a waste paper bin, you know, in, a, in a litter bin in the street. And one of the policemen saw him put something in the bin, looked in the bin, pulled out this joint. And of course, next thing he's he's getting he's in front of our commanding officer. Yeah. And he just laid it on the line to the commanding officer, said, sir, I passed out of the French Foreign Legion as a dope smoker. I've smoked dope every day of my adult life, including in the Royal Marines. If you send me to prison for this. I'm going to write a book and I will tell the world what the Royal Marines is really like. <laughs> and the, the CO just went, okay, yeah, fair one. Right. Just you're dismissed. And they, he, he, um, he left, he left the Marines, but um, so sorry. So I heard now that they've relaxed this drug thing. Mm-hmm. Do you know anything about that? I'm not, I'm not sure about the, um, the relaxation. They were still very, I mean, I didn't, again, I was in for a very short period of time, so don't have any real kind of personal experience of it. But at the time, there were a few guys who'd come, come in from the core to go through the commissioning program. Um, and they were still quite hot on it then. I think from a broader armed forces perspective, I think that, there may well be some relaxation, as you say, because of the recruitment dilemma. But because the Marines is quite small, and especially the officers as well, I can't imagine those standards would be relaxed because it's so competitive to get in. They can kind of afford to be that little bit pickier, that little bit choosier. Yeah. So there's no no real need to to relax the standards to kind of make up the numbers because the numbers are already there. So do you think, what what would your be advice if I came to you and I said, Ben, mm. um, I got arrested for and convicted of possession of cannabis three years mm. ago. Uh, should I, will that affect my application? Do, do you think that could? Or you three years back? Th- three years back, I mean, I, they're going to do a criminal background check anyway. So if anything, being honest about it is probably going to stand you in better stead than saying nothing. Because if if you say nothing and it doesn't come up, then fine, you're dandy. But if it does come up later on mm-hmm. and it, you've got like an undisclosed criminal conviction or something, then you'll probably end up having the book thrown at you anyway. Yeah. Now, now, because standards are maybe being relaxed slightly, there may be a little bit more leeway, but do you really want to have to deal with the headache? It's honesty is always the best policy yeah. with stuff like that. I think. I, I, what, what about if people have had drug problems? They've been to see their GP, but they, yeah. they haven't got any kind of criminal record because I get asked this a lot as well. Yeah. Uh, um, I think, I think then probably having a, a frank and candid conversation with your GP would probably help as well. It's like, this is what I'm potentially looking to do. Um, my GP, for example, was was very willing and able to kind of to help me out when I was going through the process. Like, would it be possible for you to give these guys a call so you can understand what they're looking for from a medical perspective? Um, 
chat to the recruiting office as well because they're normally they're normally pretty helpful. Don't necessarily put something in the in your application about it unless you have to or it's the right thing to be doing. But having a having a chat with with a recruiter will probably help as well because chances are they've seen it all before. They've probably heard whatever you're dealing with before as well, and they'll probably have some insight that they can give you for it. Another thing, one last thing. Um, a lot of people, when I speak to them, they seem to think that you're drug tested upon joining. And I, my reply to that is I was never tested my whole mm -hmm. time in the military and don't know anyone who was. Um, so I, I can't. I always suggest they go on the the Marines forums, the recruitment forums, the PRMC forums to try and get their answers there. But I mm. I wasn't tested. Do you remember? I peed in a lot of cups when I joined. So <laughs> some of them, so that may have been testing for diabetes, for example. They could have been testing for glucose. But I mean, again, it's possible. As I say, I peed in a lot of cups, so they may well have tested me. Yeah. Folks, just don't do drugs. You'll be happier. It's a poison. <laughs> so um, I tell you what we'll do. I don't want to go down the what did you do in training route because, to be honest, it's the same, although you, although you, you guys obviously have a stricter time limits and, and a mm -hmm. slightly different kind of, um, let's say, treatment. Mm -hmm. I think everyone knows what Marines training is, and I've talked lots about it. But do you want to just pick? maybe one or two moments of your training that you that you remember that were quite pertinent did you yeah, so the swimming test the swimming swimming test was okay um i remember the first time doing it so that the first time i did it was actually on the potential officers course because it's one of those things that it's it's the final evolution you do it on the last day you're you're hanging out by this point you are absolutely fucked because they've just beasted you for three days beforehand um, and then they sit you in the pool um so that was my first experience of it and it was it wasn't great like what is it it's off a five meter diving board with with your pants on with your shirt on with some webbing and with a rifle you have to swim 25 meters swim 25 meters back get the rifle out the water take the webbing out the water and then tread water for three minutes it was okay Three. Um, yeah, Three. Like, yeah. These guys had it easy. We we were five. <laughs> I might have been. It might have been five. I don't know. I, I swallowed a lot of water. <laughs> um, but they. I, I was so delighted, Ben, to have passed it by that. Uh, treading water for five minutes was not a problem for me. I, I was. Yeah. I passed. I passed. Yeah, that really I, difficult. That that was okay. I think one of the one of the strongest memories I have was at the end of one of the first exercises. At this point, you're still getting used to sleep deprivation. I think for that one, um, we slept collectively for on average about six hours over the course of five days. So I remember being on sentry, lying there, and then just hallucinating. Like, <laughs> your brain is absolutely fucked on that little sleep. And I remember thinking like, I had the I had a night vision scope at the time as well so you're like you're kind of looking through it and thinking well that might be someone moving but then that might also just be a bush because i'm tripping balls at the moment and i have no idea what is going on so that's that and the experience of being that tired 
I think are two things that have kind of stayed with me because you can like when you're tired and you're like you're falling asleep at the end of a long day like after work or something that's tired that's not really tired tired is when you're not entirely sure whether you're conscious or not tired is when you're effectively dreaming when you're still awake because your brain starts dropping into REM when you're still awake when you're that and when you're in that state so experiencing that that was that was an experience that and the mud run actually oh you did a mud run yeah we did a mud run we did a mud run um i didn't find that i didn't find that too difficult to be honest it was okay it was just the comedy of the situation it's like oh well it's it's two o'clock in the morning i've got i've just had to do two laps of the camp um and sweat through two different layers of PT kit because obviously after one lap they make you go and change because you're now dirty and you can't stand in front of the officers in dirty kit. Then they make you do it again, sweat through again, then you go and put on your first round of the other round of gear and then run down and just play around in the mud in the in the estuary and then being hosed off with a fire hose afterwards. You know, there should be a name. Maybe we need to invent one if there isn't one for when you're trying to make it look like you're really in pain and you're really trying, you're really digging out blind (laughs) so you don't get singled out by your training team where where in actual fact you're actually okay. You're just trying to make it look like you're really tired. Is there a name for that? I'm sure there is, but I'm not sure what it is. (laughs) The mud run is easy to do because you're just falling all over the place. It looks like you're really putting loads of effort in, but at that stage of training, you can't afford to, be you can't afford to run yourself into the ground you've still got all your command that we still had all our commando tests to do you know a couple of weeks time or whatever um so a bit of a drama acting i suppose you'd call it i think for for the mud run just make sure you're absolutely covered in shit and if you're if you've got it like all over your face and everything then you're not going to get picked on if you're someone who's like avoiding it like trying to avoid getting muddy and that then you're going to get just make sure that you're absolutely covered and you'll be fine. Yeah, if you come back, you've got one speck on your shirt. You've yeah, probably, like, probably not been trying hard enough. Get back in, get back in the river, sir. <laughs> so are you okay to talk about the reason you left? Of course. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so um, I made it a grand total of 16 weeks into the into the 64-week program. Um, I, as a... How- how many week program? 64. 64. 64. So, so 64. And how many, how many of those weeks were spent at Limston doing the commando training? So um, the first 30 or so weeks um, are broadly similar to training for the just training for just doing your commando test. Broadly similar. They happen at a slightly accelerated rate, so you do them slightly quicker. Um, but it looks very similar. You're doing the same exercises. They're called something slightly different, but the purpose of the exercises is the same. It's to kind of get your get your green skills up to that level so you can then pass your commando tests. Once you've passed your commando test, that's when you move into the command phase. That's when you start doing the officer stuff, ah. so leadership and so on and so forth. So they teach you the, they turn you into a Marine first and then they turn you into an officer afterwards. Yeah, got, yeah, got you. Where, do the, where does that take place? Um, the majority of the time was spent down in Limston, but then as you progress through, you're going on different exercises all over the place. So then you'll be spending some time in, um, lots of time on Dartmoor, um, 
time in Wales as well, time up in the Lake District, you spend some time up in Scotland, then um, as you progress after your commando test, there's a an exercise, a joint exercise, which takes place in takes place in America, joint exercise with the US Marines as well. So you end up moving around all over the places you progress through. But the initial phase is mainly down in Lemson. So 16 weeks, that's, um, I mean, that's just good going in itself. It's not, they're not 16 easy weeks by any stage. Mm -hmm. And when you're at weeks 16, it's, well, for me, it's that case of bloody hell. I never thought, well, ah, sorry, that's confusing. I never thought about leaving ever. Yeah. I was never homesick. Yeah. I was never, I wasn't even nervous. For me, mm -hmm. it's just, there's a job to do here. Let's, let's get, of course, I felt like I might fail at any time because that's what everybody's made to feel like. That's part of the pressure that's put on you. Yeah. Exactly. By week 16, I'm just happy to still be there. And, you know, I mean, I, gosh, it's, it was only halfway through our training, but that is still a big, a big half, you know? Yeah. So it's like being in a football match. You've got to the halfway point. That's, 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 a, some people only play one half of a football match, yeah. right? So yeah. that's um, a, a hoofing effort, as we would say, to get there. Do, are officers dissuaded from using that word or oh that's all it's all still used i've not heard that term in a while but yeah it's all all the the lexicon is still there yeah so so hoofing as you i'm sure many of you either know or guess just means brilliant um so yeah so what what happened then yes yeah, so um i made it 16 weeks in as i mentioned before um i've dealt with depression all my life and there was a brief period of time a couple of years prior to joining whereby I was on antidepressants, stopped taking them because they they just didn't agree with me. Um, I had a couple of side effects which weren't particularly pleasant, which ended up actually being worse than the depression. Um, so I came off them, went in kind of thinking I had a handle on everything, but just had these massive underlying issues which I just elected not to deal with because going back to what we were saying about disclosure on your medical application so on and so forth i just didn't really speak about them on there because it's i mean mental health issues in the military are kind of mutually exclusive you cannot have a history of one and then do the other it just doesn't work especially upon joining um the, the irony so, is by the time you leave you're probably going to have them anyway yeah <laughs> many of you have got one and hence our hence our massive uh, suicide rate at the moment yeah yeah so i um i was dealing with that and then you throw huge amounts of sleep deprivation into the mix you're physically exhausted you're emotionally exhausted and at the end of the day like as you were saying like you never thought about quitting i think for me i the first notion that i had that maybe it wasn't the right move for me was actually during the potential officers course i made it all the way through i enjoyed it i had a great time but there were a couple of times things like i don't really know if i want to do this but then by that point you get i made it through the poc i made it through the admiralty interview board and then you're presented with this golden opportunity what made you do you remember what it was that you thought because i i mean i, I was very young i didn't really know anything you know yeah. 
So no, for me, I think it was I I was looking for something that was going to to physically challenge me, mentally challenge me, emotionally challenge me in every way, and just to figure out where my limits were, basically. Because I've, as I said, like I played sport all the way through, and sport has been fantastic for kind of figuring out where those limits are, where the limits of your capability are. And I think for me, the thing that I there were two things that I struggled with the most. One was starting to struggle with the depression on a much more significant level, but being in an environment where it felt as though I wasn't able to communicate that. Mm. And two was um, the loss of freedom as well. Because you do, you do end up losing freedom. Obviously you do freedom. I mean, again, that's kind of the bargain that you make when you join up. Um, but these two things combined, coupled with the physical exhaustion, the mental exhaustion, I ended up picking up an injury, um, and then it all just kind of spiraled from there. Just going back to the the potential officers course, you said yeah. it was something that made you think maybe this isn't for me. Yeah, and no, I think it was. I, what was it? Was there anything specific? I don't think there was anything specific because it was just. I mean, the POC is basically just three days of three and a half days of grilling. Like they they just beast you. They just try and break you physically. The the mental bit. And the, the leadership assessment, the teamwork stuff, that comes later. That's for the, the Amorty interview board. But it was just being in that environment where you're just being pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. And I'd never personally experienced anything like that before. Like I pushed myself, but never been in an environment where it's a pressure cooker, where they're trying to make you break. Um, and I think it was being, being in that environment and realizing I like pushing myself for me I like finding where my limits are so I can find where my limits are. But as soon as you're being told that you have to do something, I, again, this is, this is probably why it wouldn't have worked longer term anyway. There's that kind of defiant attitude. Um, funnily enough, that reminds me of when I was going through the, the process for Sandhurst as well. They have you do tests there as well. And I got called into a room after one of these tests by one of the officers saying, so, so it looks as though you have a proclivity for breaking the rules. So would that be a fair assessment? Is that... Yeah, all right, fair enough. You've got me in a box there. But that being pushed to do something that I didn't necessarily want to do as opposed to wanting to do it of my own volition, mm. that was the thing that was the, the indicator for me. Is like, okay, I like the physical challenge. I like the mental challenge. But it's the fact that you're telling me to do it. Okay. I don't want Yeah, yeah. And when you found yourself becoming depressed, and it's, yeah. I've, I've had experience of, depression but I'm yeah. a little bit unique in as far as my depression back in the day is if I can call it that was related to my drug use you know yeah very chronic uh, intravenous drug use which just left me with no will for life when I couldn't afford to buy more drugs so the yeah. come down the come down consumed my life for for 18 yeah. months um step away from there i i feel very fortunate then because i know what a horrible condition it it is and can be but i found myself i was actually at school in norway i was at a sort of um, um a training school to go and work in africa as a as a volunteer development instructor i i, I ended up working in a in a street children's school but while we were in Norway, I worked in a, my team. So it was about 
let's say six to ten people. Um, I think we started off as ten. I think we ended up as six. And there was one point in that training. It was a six-month training program where I'm giving it my all, and I have probably a uncanny ability to turn my hand to certain things and just be really, really good. Yeah. Uh, there's many things I'm not good at. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, but some things. When it comes to seeing the way in things, I've, I've got a really good eye. So in training in the Marines, it would be, right, you know, A, B, and C, map reading. The guys would be like, right, let's go to B, automatically, let's go. To, and I'm like, whoa, guys, 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 it's like C is that, that, that thing there is C. So yeah. let's just go to C. And that, as an aside, that would be met with, fuck off, throw we're going this way. And it was like, that was very often a problem uh, came across in, in uh, that kind of like, we know what you're saying is right, but we're too mm-hmm. scared to like use our own. We're going to do what we've been sort of yeah. told. Uh, this kind of thing it wasn't exactly like, it wasn't like disobeying orders. I'm just saying on a, on a map reading exercise, you go in from A to C, whether you like it or not. Yeah, you choose to go through B just just because you're scared to. Uh, I'm waffling. Sorry, I'll get back on track. So I I'm in this school in Norway, and I was very good at fundraising. So we had to stand on the street for anything up to twelve hours a day, selling these little postcards of African children, um, for five pounds a time or fifty kroner in Norwegian or Swedish. And um, I was good. I could approach anybody. And even if they said to me, no, I'm not interested, I could turn that conversation immediately into, oh, well, I'll give you something. Just a bit of basic psychology, really. And when I put this to my team, you know, who were struggling, I'm like, guys, come approach me. I, I, I can help you overcome your, well, they wouldn't, they wouldn't do that. They, it was like they kept me at this distance and probably looking back, they were probably a bit in awe of me, mm-hmm. thinking that I had this quality that they didn't have or couldn't have. And that's mm-hmm. why they were keeping their distance. But of course, the complexity of the human mind was that my brain was telling me, Chris, they don't like you. You yeah. know, that that's how I was. Not, not that they don't like you, that you're too different. You're just too different. Yeah. You're an awkward per. And for the first time in my life, I, I, I knew what depression was. Mm-hmm. I felt it. That cliche. I, I didn't want to associate with a group anymore. I withdrew. Yeah. I was exactly. like, right. If you're going to be like that to me, I'll just keep your arms. And, when we were doing art, we had all these routines at that school. So we we lived on top of 18 miles on top of a mountain, right, in an old ski lodge. We had to do cleaning, clean the school and the accommodation every morning. And I would just say, fuck that. And I'd take myself off to the sauna. And it wasn't me being belligerent. It was just me trying to protect myself, mm-hmm. have some me time and, and, you know, just say, right, Ah, I, I hope I'm making sense. Mm-hmm. Did you was 
did you feel that as a trigger for your yes so i think for me um i've been struggling with it beforehand but as i said like not really acknowledging it was there um and then when you're when you're sleep deprived when you're exhausted then your biochemistry then starts to change as well your physiology is changing your brain isn't operating in quite the same way and then those those issues that i was struggling with beforehand it just became that much more prominent so as you were saying like i felt myself withdrawing um that then became quite apparent to my batchmates as well um which means that you end up slightly ostracized from the group as well because you're not your scene is not putting out in the same way that they are, which means that you end up being pushed aside a bit. Um, physically, like I just wasn't recovering. Mentally, I wasn't as sharp. I ended up in some pretty dark places whereby it was a case of like, I know that I'm going to have ready access to firearms and some of them are looking that little bit too attractive at the moment for all of the wrong reasons. Um and when I kind of, when I ended up, found myself in that state, I can't remember what the particular trigger was, but something happened which kind of puts you out of that headspace where you're just like, oh, okay, that's what I'm thinking at the moment. And then it was a case of like, fucking hell, if I'm thinking this at the moment in this environment, where this is a relatively safe environment, this is, it's a training environment. Like, what's the worst that's going to happen here? Nothing. But if I'm in this state now, can I, in good conscience, carry on and then potentially be responsible for the welfare of 30 guys when I pass out, if I pass out, if I then end up being medically discharged or whatever, mm. um, when I'm not able to look after myself, when I'm not able to keep my mind in the right place? And I wrestled with that for probably the better part of four weeks or something like that before coming to the decision that like, the right thing to do was to be leaving was to leave was to leave um and also in the background as well like as i said i had an issue with the discipline not necessarily an issue with the discipline an issue with the with the jump how high sort of command structure and the loss of freedom and i think that in combination with the that in combination with the fact that i was dealing with the depression um I just remember being on the train away from Limson for the like the last time when I did finally leave and just there being a massive sense of relief. Mm. And like the guys who made it through, the guys who passed out, fair play to them. But at the end of the day, um, I'm happy that I did it. It was a great experience. It's been defining in that you end up learning you're a lot more capable of things than you think you are if you can push yourself that little bit further. But I don't regret the decision. It was definitely the right thing to do. Yeah, I'll say a couple of things there. First off, in my first half of my career, I just wanted to be a Marine. Well, first third of my career, I wanted to be a Marine. So I didn't care about them shouting and taking my freedom. It was just what I wanted to do, right? Second third of my career, I got involved in business and I knew that there was a brighter life for me outside of the, the Marines. Funny enough, in Hong Kong. Yeah. So I started to orientate myself with leaving the military um, to go and pursue my dream, at which point I started to really suffer that loss of freedom. Yeah. To give you an example, you know, I might have a business plan, a business meeting planned, and I'm talking to anywhere up to a thousand people. Yeah. 
and I get a call the evening before. Corporal Thrall, you're on duty tomorrow. Oh, yeah, but, uh, Sergeant, what it is, I've got this meeting planned. It's for my, you know, resettlement. I'm obviously, I've got my notice in now to leave. I, I, I need this. Well, well, well. Yeah. And, and the cliche would be, well, you're in the fucking Marines now. You're on yeah. Marines. Time. And it's like, yes, I, of course I understand that. I'm not stupid. I'm getting paid by the government. I get that. Mm-hmm. But it's also that I've built a life for myself to move on to. Yeah. And, I'm, and, and so that is when I started to get that feeling that you're trying to describe, that when That's someone else, someone else has your freedom in their hands, no different yeah. to being in, a, in any job in that respect, the other thing is, I just wanted to say what a brave move of you it was to make that decision. And as hard as some people think getting the green berry is, what you had to do is harder and deserves uh, equally, if not probably more merit, because we don't understand mental health um, conditions. Mm-hmm in this society, in, in this world, really. Um, we're very cruel about it and we don't understand the challenges inside are far greater than some physical endurance course or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so con- congratulations on, you know, just, yeah. you know, getting over such a big hurdle in your life. Yeah, and it, was, make, it, making... was, it was a difficult one to get over as well because it's, it, it's reconciling because like, when you're when you're going in, um, as I'm sure you can appreciate, you you cultivate this mentality of never backing down, never quitting. Like push, keep pushing yourself because if you push yourself that little bit more, you'll be able to get through. But then I found myself in a situation whereby the pushing was the thing that was doing the doing the damage. It was the thing that was harming me. So then having to make a decision that ran effectively counter to the headspace that I was in to get myself in. Reconciling those two things is something that took me a very, very long time to do because you walk away and then you still, you look at the decision that you made to walk away through the lens of never backing down. It's, it looks like a failure because it's like, well, you quit, you walked away from something. But then over time, I mean, on paper, objectively, I did walk away. And you could define that as a failure. I didn't make it all the way through. But over time, my understanding of that decision and the fact that it was 100% the right thing to be doing, as you were saying, like not defining yourself by one one small thing. As you say, you only have one life. Not defining yourself by one decision. That was a big thing for me. And I wrestled with it for a very, very long time. Ben, can you just hold it there? I've got some yeah, background sure. noise. I just want to... Yeah, no problem. It's had to have a word with the neighbours. <laughs> sort them out. They won't be washing their car again. <laughs> So um, let's finish off then, if we may, yeah. by 
the the thing I really appreciate about you, Ben, is you're not like apologetic about the fact that you left the Marines, that it was some, you know, because I, I do understand and I hear this a lot because I meet a lot of people that's, ah, yeah, I was like in the Marines and, and there's this kind of apologeticness that they left before getting the green berry or doing the commander test right and it's like no the expression is once a marine always a marine and that's i speak you know for everyone there obviously there's being a commando but it's you deserve the everyone deserves the respect for giving it a go getting in there and you know it's called the marines family for for a reason mm -hmm. and and we we when we had our we've had two reunions now my my training troop and one of our boys comes down um or comes from what the channel islands to take part mm -hmm. and it wasn't until the end of the night i don't know if it's our first reunion or our second i said which, which unit did you go to and he said chris i i didn't pass out of training so what he said, yeah, mm -hmm. I got back trooped from 558. That was my troop. Yeah. And uh, I I then got medically discharged. Wow. Well, here's the thing. He's no less of a brother to us than than, mm -hmm. than any a, a, any of us. It's it's not not even an issue, I think, of, of I'm only only thinking about it now. Um but um what what I also try to encourage people is, is like life ain't a competition. Mm -hmm. Again, it's these barriers we've been taught from school that you, that, that life is a competition and it's about the money and the kudos and the fast car and the officers pips and the, it's no, it's not. It's about finding peace in your heart. And I wish I could get it across to people that go, oh, I was, a, I was in the Marines, but I only got to, and then I, you know, I'm not like you. I'm not like, I'm like, no, you're exactly, you know, we are literally exactly flesh and blood. We are the same, right? Um, how did you, how, how do you keep such a stable mind? I think for me, um, there was there was a period of time whereby I did find myself in that headspace that you're talking about, whereby you are a little bit apologetic um, about leaving, about making the decision to leave. But at the end of the day, like you can choose to you can choose to fixate on a particular moment in the past, and you can see if that is the only thing that you're focusing on, and you view that as your peak then you end up blinding yourself to absolutely everything else that is going on around you, all of the other opportunities that could be coming your way. But as you say, like you're so blinkered, you're so focused on that one thing that you miss the things that are going on outside of it. And for me, um, coming to that understanding did take some time, did take some time. Um, but a really like a way that I found incredibly beneficial to do it is exercise again just kind of circ circling back to circling back to what i loved in the first place like the physical challenge but doing it for me 
pushing myself is like, okay, fine. Like I wasn't able to do that. But just because I wasn't able to do that then doesn't mean that I'm necessarily not going to be able to do this now. So just keeping, keep challenging yourself. And just because you've maybe failed to do something in the past doesn't mean you're going to fail to do something of a similar nature in the future. Like past failures do not have to define future, future successes. Yeah. And I, I say in my, the book, my next book, one of my chapters is going to be we only go forwards, which is yeah, just exactly. not, not, I was going to say metaphor, but it's actually quite literal is there is literally nothing to be gained by living in the past. No, all nothing. you are doing is handcuffing yourself to misery. Yeah. And it's up to you. You just turn a switch in here and let it go. Live yeah. tomorrow. Life's exactly. not, it's not a competition. It's about exactly. living your life. And making the best of it as you go along. Yeah, um, Ben, I would love to ask you about uh, yeah. investigate your depression more, right? But I yeah, think yeah. I think we can do that in the podcast that we're going to do. Yep, yeah. uh, we'll keep this kind of military. Um, but on that note, you're a lovely guy. Um, thank you for taking the time to talk to my subs. And uh, Not at all. yeah, let's. With maybe if they have any kind of questions, you'd come on my live chat because I try to do a live chat every yeah. Friday. I call yeah. it Commando to Commando, or we can call it yeah, it's possible, Commando to, to young to potential young officer or or whatever. But I think that would be fascinating. Yeah. So I'll say goodbye and thank you very much. You are more than welcome, Chris. Thank you very much for your kind words, and again. If anyone has any questions, you can relay them to me via Chris or I'll see if I can dig out my social media handles as well. Good man. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username Chris Thrall. Instagram Chris.Thrall. Thank you.